places. Everyone. We're now broadcasting. Roll the tape in. Three, two. A new audio drama. Appaloosa Radio is where stories come alive. Souvenirs I Still Cherish Helen Stanberry's Story As read by Lindsay Beth Hummel Chapter 4 1968 Times Are Changing former student stopped by our big old house for a glass of lemonade and for some advice. I felt it a distinct privilege that so many of my former students still trusted me enough to share the most sensitive parts of their lives with me. I remember that my former student had been a very sensitive and bright boy concerned with the feelings of others, who valued being morally upright and telling the truth. He was now a grown man standing over six feet tall with children of his own, but I knew from his manner that he was now what I remembered from back then. Miss Stanberry, I need to talk to you about something. I invited him in and we sat at our kitchen table drinking lemonade. I knew my former student now worked at the university, but since I was involved with the care of my mother, I had not kept up with things there. He began slowly. You know they fired Cecil. Said it was because he was having sex with a woman in his office. He was fired for moral turpitude. I guessed he was talking about Cecil Turner, or more specifically, Cecil Turner Jr., a phenomenal local athlete who had returned from the Vietnam War to work at the university. I did not personally know Cecil. I had seen his picture often in the local newspaper, but I had never met him. I knew that he had come from Janaluska community, a secluded community of free blacks that had existed, hidden in the mountains since before the Civil War. It had survived by keeping its existence secret, excluding almost all contact with outsiders, I knew of it because a teacher friend had once invited me to help her teach literacy classes there. I found the members of the community to be people of ultimate privacy. My student continued, Miss Stanberry, I don't think he done it. It was Nadine. Let me tell you a secret. It's a secret everybody knows, but no one ever talks about. It is a secret you will never see in a history book. It is a secret that no one would ever tell an outsider. An outsider, by the way, is anyone whose great-great-great-grandpa came from someplace else outside the county. The town we now call Boone was originally named Council's Store. Mr. Jordan Council came up to the mountains and started a store 
even before Daniel Boone charted the road that now leads to Tennessee. Here's the secret. When Mr. Jordan Council came to the mountains, he came with his two wives and six children. Both his wives were black. They had been his former slaves, and he had a growing brood of children with them. It didn't matter much to Daniel Boone and the earliest settlers. None of them cared much for owning slaves. They couldn't afford them. And besides, Mr. Jordan Council was a fair man who always honored his word. Jordan Council's descendants owned real estate, voted, drank whiskey, and intermarried with white women. Again, no one noticed, or at least cared to notice. This was the frontier. All the social rules were loose. If you survived what the mountainous frontier threw at you, you were permitted to live as you chose. However, by about the 1840s, things changed. What had been an isolated frontier was now connected with roads and trade. More and more people came. With them came the expectations of the South, particularly regarding the status of free blacks in a slaveholding society. It came to bother the upright white citizens that there was this group of presumably free blacks who acted as if they were white citizens. One of the first manifestations of this was at the town's original cemetery, which included both Jordan Council's descendants and other white pioneers, was now deemed inappropriate. A new all-white cemetery was built adjacent to the older one. By the 1890s, the restrictions of Jim Crow were in full force. Blacks were permitted to come into town only on Saturday mornings, and they had to be gone by noon. They could no longer enter the front door of stores, they could no longer own businesses. They could no longer vote. Jordan Council had been a zealous Methodist, but his descendants couldn't enter a white church. By the Civil War, Jordan Council's descendants were not dark-skinned. Their skin was no longer black. They were not even chocolate brown or beige. They were as white-skinned as I was. For a while, folks in Watauga County could pretend to not notice that Jordan Council's great-grandchildren had black lineage. So it was that Boone's first official mayor was one of Jordan Council's direct descendants. But as the South demanded more segregation, folks could no longer pretend. In the mountains of North Carolina, it became a segregation based not on skin color or culture, but on family history. The first group of dark-skinned former slaves arrived in the mountains through the efforts of the Grace Brethren Mennonite Church. In the early 1870s, the Grace Brethren Mennonite Church built chapels for the freed slaves. I know of three such chapels, one in Greensboro, one in Winston-Salem, and one in Statesboro. Each held church services and were staffed by black lay pastors. However, given the feelings of Southern whites at the time, this proved to be a dangerous endeavor. Church services were frequently disrupted by white ruffian gangs. An elder of the Mennonites approached the descendants of the Jordan Council about buying land for a church for these freed slaves. They also asked for additional land that the former slaves could share crop. In that way, the very unique Jinaluska community was born. The isolated and twisting Jinaluska Creek housed a thriving free black community whose very existence was kept largely hidden from public view. Cecil Turner Jr. was a very light-skinned young man who came from the Junaluska community. You may remember earlier that I said, say an individual's last name and everyone could tell you which hollow they lived in. 
Well, Turner was not a common name in North Carolina's Appalachian Mountains. Some might say that marked the young man as an outsider, someone from outside the three adjacent counties. However, all one had to do was to look at young Cecil with his fair skin and engaging green eyes, and you knew that he was a direct descendant of the original Mr. Jordan Council. All of the council descendants bore that same look. Cecil's father, Cecil Sr., had been born in the Junaluska community and was a decorated Army veteran of World War II. After the war, he became a well-respected news photographer for the Winston-Salem Journal, and as a result lived most of the time off the mountain in the greater Triad region. Cecil Jr. continued to live with his mother, aunts, and uncles in the secluded Junaluska community. That is not to say that Cecil's father had abandoned him. He would visit on his off days, taking the young Cecil hunting and fishing. Like all the children in the Junaluska community, young Cecil attended the small 23-student colored academy where four teachers taught all subjects in grades 1 through 12. When I attended the state normal school back in the 1920s, I took most of my coursework at what was called the demonstration school. My college faculty actually taught the classes for students. That is, they demonstrated the lessons with real students for those of us who were in training to be teachers. We were told to teach as the demonstrations showed. By the 1950s, the whole demonstration school model was viewed as completely outmoded. In many colleges, it was abandoned. However, not so with the State Teachers College in Boone. I believe that may have been in part because operating the public schools brought additional revenue to the college. Whatever the real reason, the college operated both the town's white elementary school and its white high school. A new college president came with a new vision. He sought to transition from the single-focused teacher's college to a multidiscipline regional university. One of his very first actions was enhancing the school's athletic programs. In 1959, he allowed the basketball coaches to recruit black players. There was no fanfare, no publicity, and no protest. Almost immediately, the basketball program improved, and in eight years, the state university was both the premier member of the prestigious Southern Conference and the basketball team had been invited to the NCAA National Tournament. With the school's color barrier so easily broken, the college's president set about his next priority, moving the so-called demonstration school into the public school system. For that, Watauga County needed a new, state-of-the-art, comprehensive high school, combining all the county's four high schools into a single entity. No one seemed to notice, but the new high school also allowed the students from the Forlorn Colored Academy to attend. Again, there was no publicity, no fanfare, and no protest. So it was that Cecil Turner Jr. entered Watauga High School as a rising sophomore. He proved both to be a studious student and an outstanding athlete. He made the school's honor roll each semester, and he participated in five varsity sports. Without doubt, his role on the basketball team was the most notable. I remember seeing his picture in the local newspaper almost every week. When Cecil graduated, five colleges offered him scholarships. He chose to stay close to home and attend the state university. The president personally welcomed him to the campus. Our hometown guy is staying in his hometown. Cecil did not do well in college. He later said that he fell in with a group of party guys and stopped working hard. 
After two years, he dropped out and, like his father, joined the army. He served in Vietnam and was decorated for his bravery. In 1967, he returned to Boone and was hired by the university as its assistant director of maintenance operations. He married one of his distant cousins and built his own house in the Junaluska community. Enter Mr. Robert Harvey Dean. I don't know how to describe him without using the words mean or exploitative or racist. R.H. Dean came to North Carolina from Virginia, where he was said to be an expert in high-efficiency, coal-fired electrical generating systems. Certainly in 1968, the university needed to modernize its coal-fired electrical generating system. Its existing system dated from the 1940s, when the school was one-fifth of its current size and the cost of buying coal was running nearly $40,000 a month. Two years earlier, I had retired after 40 years in the classroom. I was now living in our big old house with my widowed mother. She was having some memory issues and needed me to provide care for her. One afternoon, a former student knocked on our door. Miss Stanberry, I need to talk to you about something. I invited him in and we sat at our kitchen table drinking lemonade. I knew my former student now worked at the university, but since I was involved with the care of my mother, I had not kept up with things there. He began slowly. You know, they fired Cecil, said it was because he was having sex with a woman in his office. He was filed for moral turpitude. Miss Stanbury, I don't think he done it. It was Nadine. The moment he said Nadine, I knew that in every likelihood, Mr. Cecil Turner Jr. was an innocent caught in her webs. The first time I ever saw Nadine's bare white tush was when she was in eighth grade. She had been sent by her teacher to the principal's office for a paddling. She was slowly dawdling down the hall, back more or less toward her own classroom. I was surprised to see that her panties were dangling around one of her ankles. A younger, seventh grade girl came up to Nadine and asked, Did it really hurt? Nadine lifted up her dress and showed the younger girl her bare buttocks. He swatted me once, see here? And then I told him that I would remember it more if he dropped my panties and swatted my bare bottom. He dropped my panties, but he didn't swat me no more. He got to looking, feeling, and rubbing, and he forgot all about swatting me. You mean he touched you? Touched you there? Yeah, but sure a lot better than getting swatted again. Besides, I think he's kind of cute. Maybe I'll go back for another swat. And she did. It is not gossip to say that I saw Nadine coming out of the principal's office on multiple occasions. These were well after the school day had ended and the office staff had gone home. She always had that... I got away with something smirk. A smirk that really riled me. I didn't care much for that particular principal. He was the nephew of the district superintendent and had been a coach at the high school before being made our principal. He never visited any of our classrooms or interacted with the students. In the mornings, he would read the announcements over the school's loudspeaker, lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance, and then retreat into his office. 
After a couple of years, he eventually left and went to Charlotte to sell life insurance. Nadine went to high school for a year or two, then she got pregnant and had to quit. Over Lemonade, my former student told me that Nadine now had four children, all by different men, and she had not married any of them. She was now working at the university as a woman's janitor. But Miss Stanberry, she is just plumb lazy, just a lazy old dog, doesn't do any of her own work. How did she get involved with Cecil? He was her boss. He was fixing to fire her because she don't do no work. He continued, I think she's in cahoots with Mr. Dean. He is one mean son of a gun and he really hates Cecil. We've all heard him cuss Cecil out. He uses lots of racist names. Comes from Virginia where he says blacks know their place. After my former student left, I decided to act. It was 1968. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. So had Bobby Kennedy and earlier his brother, the president. Times were changing. The South was changing. The mountains were changing. Once I had been the spoiled daughter of the region's wealthiest man. People allowed me to do whatever I wanted. Now I too had changed. I knew that I had an obligation to end whatever injustices I could. I owed it to the generations that may follow. Besides, I was retired and I just needed an opportunity to stir things up. I decided that my most effective weapon was publicity. I composed a full-page ad that would run in the coming Thursday edition of the county's only newspaper. I drove to the newspaper's office with my copy in hand. I had $75 in cash ready to pay for the ad. The editor had once borrowed money from my father to keep the newspaper operating during the darkest days of the Depression. He knew me well, and he greeted me warmly. I knew that he was five years older than me and should have retired some years ago. I suspect that the reason he did not retire was that he still enjoyed being the only source of local news that the area had. When I showed him the ad, with its blaring headline, Justice for Boone's Own, he blanched. Helen, he said, speaking to me like a child, you know I can't run this kind of ad. You know I can't. He began to stammer. This community just would not allow me to do it. The university would not. By now he was so angry that he couldn't complete his sentences. He was shaking his head, wildly waving his hands. Herman, I brought the cash to pay for the ad. I will assume all responsibility for its content. Helen, I can't. I won't. And I wouldn't even if I could. I left, but was far from disappointed. I knew I had started something. Small town newspapers print only a fraction of the news they acquire. Sometimes there's more money in not printing a story than in running it. I knew that as soon as I had left, there would be phone calls, and those phone calls would lead to other calls, and then there would be quickly convened meetings and hushed discussions. The times may be changing, but the predictable dynamics of small-town communication had not. My ad may not have been printed in the newspaper, but it had all the effects that I desired. The next day, I returned to Herman's newspaper office. This time, I had a letter to the editor instead of an advertisement. Herman, your newspaper claims that it will print any letter that it receives. I'm putting your policy to the test. Will you publish my letter? Helen, we discussed this yesterday. That letter is not a fit topic for this newspaper to print. It deals with purported sexual relationships and private personnel issues. And it deals with the false claim by a white woman that she had sexual relations with a black man. Well, yes, but apparently she was in a state of undress. Aha! So you have been sharing my ad, you old codger. You're caught in the act. I did discuss the claims with some others, seeking the truth. Herman, 
If you are seeking the truth, then tell me why Mrs. Nadine Pryor was not fired along with Mr. Cecil Turner. Poor Herman was turning blue with extreme rage. Tell me, Herman, why was she promoted to a supervisory position? Everyone I have spoken with describes her as a terrible employee who takes unexcused absences and does not finish her assigned work. Herman is blubbering, unable to craft a credible response. Herman, I am Miss Helen Elizabeth Stanberry. I am the meanest, toughest woman you have ever met. I have taught fifth grade for 40 years. Not once in those 40 years did I ever have to send a child to the principal's office. No one ever dared disobey me. Herman gulped. In age, he may be ready for retirement, but at that moment, he had retreated to fifth grade, a quivering little lad who'd been caught in an act of misbehavior. Helen, I see your point. I'll investigate it. With that, I left the newspaper office knowing that I had accomplished my purpose. A couple of weeks later, my former student stopped by again to enjoy some lemonade in our kitchen. You know, Miss Stanbury, it's been really strange at work. Cecil Turner was brought back to his old job and Nadine Pryor was fired. And Mr. Dean, he's taken a vacation. It really wasn't a vacation. According to an article in Herman's newspaper, Mr. Dean had taken a new position in Myrtle Beach. He told the newspaper that his family was having a difficult time adjusting to the extreme cold of the mountains. As I said earlier, it was 1968 and times were changing. Appaloosa Springs Audio Theatre is a creative collaboration whose purpose is to write, produce, and share original story content through webcast radio experiences.